Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. This is Tony Jones. I am the Reverend Hunter. That's what they tell me. And we have uh, always, as always, bringing us some fantastic banter. Our, our now veteran hunting producer, Brandon. I mean, we'll, we'll throw hunting in there because I guess that's what I was legally doing. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tease, man. Brandon, it's a tease. I want everyone to tune in to our fifth Monday episode at the end of uh, November, right after Thanksgiving. That's American Thanksgiving. Canadian Thanksgiving is already come and gone. Um, because you and I are going to talk about your foray into shooting and into hunting. Mm-hmm. We've already been shooting together. We have been hunting together. And I hope that prior to that episode, we will also hunt and actually uh, kill something <laughs> together because <laughs> we spent a whole day hoofing it, man. Hoofing it till my back was in agony and your fake hip was in agony and we uh we saw some pheasants yeah. but anyway i i don't want to give it away i don't want to give it away but you i you were in blaze orange that's i i was i had a i had a license and everything i felt really cool i had the, you know the little plastic wallet thing they give you with so yep yep fun. yep it was fun here's a funny one for you i uh I went back out in the direction where you and I were hunting uh, yesterday with a friend, and we drove kind of a little bit northwest of the Twin Cities, out around the Litchfield area, and we were, you know, we hunted public land. Similar to my day with you, we didn't have a great deal of success, but um, day, and we've flushed a bunch of hens up. Uh, but here's what's funny, Brandon. We're driving out Highway 7, and um, all of a sudden, the, the guy who's with me, he says, hey, look at all these pheasants flying over the road. I'm like, dude, those are not pheasants. Those are wild turkeys. Wild turkeys, it's like 8.45 in the morning, so they're coming out of the roost. They're flying uh, across the highway, I'm sure to go feed in a field or whatever. <laughs> and then one, the minivan in front of us just like, Boom! We just all we see is like feathers in the air. Okay. Oh no! <laughs> so, one flew right in front of the minivan that was in front of us on the highway, and then I see it, you know, go across the road and roll to roll over to the shoulder of the road. Well, I pull my truck over the 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 driver of the minivan. I see goes about a quarter mile up, and then she stops, and then she pulls a U turn, and she comes back on the other side of the road so she's over on the side of the road with the turkey that is quickly expiring and she rolls down her window and she says what just happened and i was like well you hit a turkey or you know a turkey hit you and she got out of her minivan and i got out of my truck and her mini the front of her minivan was crunched dude the entire grill i mean it's plastic right. but it was like completely destroyed by this turkey and I said, um, hey, uh, do you want that turkey? And she goes, no, I don't even know how to dispose of it. I'm like, I'll dispose of it for you. So I picked the turkey up, threw it in the back of my truck, and went on with my day. And I am, as we're recording this, I'm looking out my back window, and that turkey is on my smoker. And we're having roadkill turkey for dinner. Roadkill turkey, that sounds really good. <laughs> Actually, how do you how do you prepare roadkill turkey? I mean, I, I mean, that's the physical it, damage, and then go from there. But yeah, yeah, it did not have much damage. I mean, it was obviously the impact of hitting the car that killed it. It had a little bit of road rash on one of the breasts, like the skin was a little torn. But really, the you know the turkey was in really good shape. So anyway, uh, yeah, roadkill turkey. At uh, for dinner at the Jones Perry household this evening. I'm sure we're going to be able to like check out your Instagram and see it on there. I assume <laughs> you got it. I I appreciate the Instagram shout out. Of course. Well, um, I'm pretty excited about this guest. You you listened in on our conversation. Jill Carroll is uh, she's a scholar of world religions and an avid hunter. 
so we talk about both of those areas of interest of hers and kind of how she got into hunting. What I, you know, one thing I really love about her story is that it was the women in her life who taught her how to hunt when she was growing up in the deep South. And she's, I think that's relatively rare, you know? And so that was pretty cool to hear about from her. Yeah. And, uh, I, I, out of all the guests we've had, I can really appreciate just her philosophy and general outlook on things. So, mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. She was, she was a great, great person for me to listen to. I, I came up pretty inspired by her. Yeah. That's, I remember you saying that after we, Inter interviewed her so uh, you can find her at her website which is in the show notes but it's jillcarroll.com pretty easy to find you can read more about her see her books and everything we we do refer again i you know i've done this in a, in a few different episodes where i re referred to this book that bracy hill edited called god nimrod and the world and i you know i refer to it because really it's it's the, the only book of its kind that deals with um hunting from kind of a spirituality perspective, theological perspective. And as I say, you know, Jill's very brief essay in there, I think is really, truly one of the highlights of that, of that book. So that, that's what inspired me to reach out to her and ask her to be on the show. Uh, she's a great, she was a great guest. I think everybody will love it. So we will go to that uh, conversation now and please always remember to subscribe rate and review the reverend hunter podcast if you like it tell your friends if you're listening to this episode and you're like hey i think i know somebody who would like this episode hit that share button and uh, send it on their way but we really appreciate your support and we uh will continue bringing you what we hope are great conversations on the reverend hunter podcast here is one of those conversations with jill carroll Jill, thank you so much for joining me on the Reverend Hunter podcast. I am glad to be here, Tony. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Now, okay. You're are you in Arizona now? You've you've relocated yeah. from Houston to Arizona in the last yeah. couple of years. Yeah, I'm in Phoenix. Came here um, summer of 2018. Actually, I drove out here Labor Day weekend of 2018. Okay, and I packed up right, my right before and, hunting season. Yeah, and it was still <laughs> you know 117 degrees in the oh daytime. You know here, so when dove season started here, it was just too hot. <laughs> I, I, I'm sorry, it's just too hot. You just like and, dove hunt naked because you just <laughs> can't. I mean, my gosh, it's, it's too so hot to hot. hunt. It's, I can't, it's, it's unbelievable. So I actually waited, you know, they have a split season here, um, like okay. they do, I think in lots of parts of the country. And so I waited until around, uh, Christmas time to go mm. dove hunt. And of course, by then the weather was, you know, it was only in the eighties. <laughs> Jiminy Christmas. What, uh, what what kind of stuff have you have you taken up new types of hunting? I suppose Arizona and Texas aren't that different. In a sense, they're not that different. There are some of the same species of game in the southern part of the state, particularly um, white winged dove hunting, quail. Uh, here we have the gambles quail. In addition to, I mean, not so much bob white quail like you have in Texas, but uh, or in the eastern parts of the country. Um, and then there's deer, white-tailed deer and all that. I haven't hunted deer here. Um, okay. But then, of course, in the northern part of the state, you have elk and pronghorn. You have, you know, other species. Yeah. Um, and then you get upland game birds uh, here and there, pockets of grouse and things like that. I've not hunted that stuff yet. But the main difference is that um, in Texas, so much of the hunting access is through private land yeah and when i lived in houston um i had a an 1100 acre lease that i i leased privately and i had nine guys on it that i invited to come on it to help me pay for it <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and it was about an hour west of houston so i could just drive out you know but here there's um it's public land like when i've gone yeah. and hunted here it's been on bureau of land management um mm. land mm -hmm. and phoenix you know it's surrounded by all of it it's just a matter of um you know finding out where it is how to get there making sure you don't cross a line into somebody's pasture or something right and so it's just a 
I've had to learn I've, I, the, it's a different system. They have the whole state divided up into these regions and these areas. And so just learning that and, you know, making sure I'm not violating any rules I don't know exist. That's been the main thing. Can you, can, I, I'm, I, I've heard this, you know, I, I had Bracey Hill on um, yeah. a while back and he talked about leases and explain that to me. Like, um, when you, so you had, a, you leased 1100 acres private property. Now, was this mm -hmm. like a portion of, of somebody's ranch or farm or was it the entirety of their ranch or farm? So this was a woman who inherited property from her parents. She and I believe a sister and a cousin inherited several thousand acres um, combined. And so her part of it was about 1100 acres. Okay. And she had, it was mostly pasture land. So she leased it to a cattle rancher who had cows on it. And right. then, so he held the primary lease. And so he did what he wanted to do with it with regard to his cattle. And then she also leased it to us for the bird hunting rights, to me, for the bird hunting rights. There were three or four stock ponds on it that drew doves and quail and ducks. And there was mm -hmm. actually a pretty sizable lake on it, about a four or five acre lake that was... Um, that really drew ducks and had, I put duck blinds mm. on it. So we had secondary rights to the rancher. But you so did whatever, not have rights to hunt uh, any big game, any deer or no, feral hogs or anything that. like that. She okay. did not want us shooting deer. She had a soft okay. spot for deer. And um, she really just didn't want us using rifles. And that's mostly, sure. you know, she wanted just shotgun only. And we were mostly a bird hunting operation anyway. I, I mostly hunt birds. I've hunted deer. Uh -huh. I grew up hunting deer, you know, all that. But I prefer to hunt birds. And so that's what we did on that lease. Okay. And then you had to, I suppose, give that lease up when you moved. Was that hard I to do? I transferred yeah, it over. Yeah. I mean, one of the men that I'd hunted with, on that lease and even prior to me getting that lease uh, for I'd hunted with him for probably 20 years I ended up um, just signing it over to him and the landowner she was fine with that and so I think some of the same people are hunting it uh, but yeah I mean I felt sad I mean I've had a lot of great hunts out on that lease and mm -hmm. I mean I had it for almost 10 years 10 years mm -hmm. I guess and one of my hunting dogs, her ashes are out there, you know, oh, I scattered awesome. them out there. Yeah. And, um, I've just had a lot of fun out there during the hunting season, which basically for birds went Labor Day weekend through the end of January. So that's a pretty good chunk of time. Yeah. Well, I, I that's yeah, a lot I'm... of time. I was out there at <laughs> least once a week, maybe twice a week. Oh, that's awesome. I plan to, um, you know, unless COVID knocks me down, I plan to take the, this m incredible duck hunting odyssey, oh, leaving, yeah. Minne leaving Minneapolis after Christmas, driving along the northern border to, to Oregon, yeah, duck hunting with my brother, then picking up another guy. We're going to drive down and hunt in northern California and then in southern California, and then we're going to drive... <laughs> straight oh east and God. then duck hunt outside of dallas for a couple days around oh, right around right great. around mlk weekend yeah it's gonna be awesome that sounds epic <laughs> it does sound epic it does and i i mean i don't know if we can pull it it's like 5700 miles of driving <laughs> but um i have duck hunted one time in texas in like flooded timber mm -hmm. um Wood ducks, mallards, yeah. Yeah, that kind of thing. Is that what you were shooting at that No, lease? this is golf. This is, uh, I mean, there was a lease that I was on, I don't know, a while back uh, when I first got back into hunting after graduate school. And I shot some wood ducks off of that lease because it was pretty wooded at uh, that particular lease. But no, mostly the duck hunting in South Texas where I hunted is Gulf Coast type um Hunting, okay. so you get okay. a lot of uh, you get mallards, widgeon, 
Mexican model ducks, lots of teal, particularly early season oh, teal because they do great. that split season. Yeah. So the, the they have like a three weekend, two week, three weekend hunt in September for teal. And I mean, the mosquitoes are as big as the teal. So you've really got to adjust <laughs> right. your duck hunting strategy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I used to just hunt in like ultralight waders, you know, trout fishing uh -huh. waders because it's just so hot. Just put on like running shorts and a tank top and throw some waders on top of it in a, you know, cause it's so hot and the mosquitoes will carry you off. But, um, and then like I would duck hunt some with some friends down in Port O'Connor and this is out in the Gulf. Um, so oh, you get redhead, cool. you know, redheads and all, you know, lots of different species out there too. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I would love yeah, to duck hunt with you sometime. You'll get some cool species up in, uh, up in Oregon and, and the California yep. coast. That's really cool. Yeah. That I go out to Oregon every year and duck hunt with my brother, uh, in bend, which is not really yeah. in a flyway, but there's a lot of, um, resident ducks who don't really need to leave because there's mm -hmm. all there's, you know, up in that high desert, a lot of the water stays open, but the, I mean, the best time is honestly, he's got a couple aerators in a, in his lake out in front yeah. of his cabin. And yeah. so on really cold days when all the ditches, you know, and the, and the, just the cattle ponds are frozen, yeah, man, those ducks just come. They pile in there. Oh, do they? <laughs> it's just a tornado of ducks. You know, they see open water and. You sit uh, on the back it, porch and pick them off. Yeah, yeah, and we're just like greenheads only, greenheads only, you know. So <laughs> yeah, you can afford to be choosy. Yeah. Um. All right. It's funny because I've I've had this line, which you know, you put the lie to my my funny little line that I've used for years of like. I've never found another theologian in a duck blind because, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're, 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 Jill, we're a rare breed. People with PhDs in theology That's or right. religion who, who are right. hunters. Um, That's right. First of all, tell, tell us what a, a scholar of world religions does. And I'll say that, I mean, I remember when I think I was in, I think I was in high school and my mom gave me a book by Houston Smith. Mm -hmm. And I was like, a scholar of world religion. And of course, at that time, I was just a little, you know, evangelical suburban kid. And I'm like, well, I guess I should learn about all these other heresies. That heresies, satanic religions. <laughs> uh, and of course, as I've grown and... And and my mind has been open, and I become more progressive. I've I have so much, such a deep love and respect for other, you know, religions. Um, tell tell me about the kind of work you've done and the kind of study that you've done. Yeah, sure. So, like you, I'm raised in um, evangelical conservative Christianity of the Pentecostal charismatic variety. Okay. So from Where, when I'm a whereabouts? little tiny kid, Louisiana, Shreveport, Louisiana. Okay. okay. And, uh, you know, born again at five, spoke in tongues at seven, preached Damn. my first sermon at 12, um, very active and all that. Went to Oral Roberts University. Come on. For my, yeah, for my bachelor's oh my. and my master's degree. And then wow. came to Rice University in Houston to do my PhD. And by the time I left Oral Roberts University, I was no longer a Christian. I had hmm. um, just sort of moved. My own journey had taken me not only out of the particular variety of Christianity that I've been raised in, but out of it, out of the religion altogether. And it's not because I had any kind of bad experience. I I love my upbringing. I still um, get chill bumps when I hear music and praise music and stuff from my background. I, I, I had a wonderful experience in that upbringing. I left it because I just didn't believe it anymore. Sure. Okay. Not because I had some bad experience. And well, was that, so, sorry, did, yeah. was that, a, was that an evil, uh, did, did that happen because of grad study? Because, you know, that's a, a knock on higher education that more yeah. conservative versions of Christianity all, all often have is, oh, you know, if you go to grad school, you're going to lose your faith. So yeah. don't go to grad school. It'll educate you out of your faith. Right. Um, 
yeah, that's basically what happened. I mean, it was it over? Happen. It, it it happened it didn't over happen time. At or? Rice. It happened at Oral Roberts University. That's interesting. <laughs> I mean, okay. if I had gone, you know, if I had gone to a secular state school or something, I probably would have kept my faith because I would have been so defended. I would have been uh -huh. so gu on guard yes. against learning yeah. anything that I, I wouldn't have learned anything. But because Oral Roberts University is actually a liberal arts university, it's not a Bible college. It's yeah. like Brigham Young. It's it's a it's a faith-based university. And the professors there when I was there, you know, they had PhDs from Oxford and Tubingen and Yale and you know, yeah. Princeton and they had yeah. acad legit academic credentials. So I didn't feel like I needed to be defended at all. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel like I needed to guard my faith or guard my understanding. So I just soaked it all in. And then lo and behold, I was like, holy crap, you know what I thought this book here is not exactly what I thought it was. Mm -hmm. It's more complex. It's more nuanced. And it opened up an entire cavern of questions and curiosity and interest in me. So. By the time I finished in the seminary, I I had I was so obsessed with questions of religion mm -hmm. and philosophy of religion and all of it. I just had to go do a PhD. I had no idea what I had no career ambition. I had no idea what I would do with it. I had no idea how I would make any money. None of that. I, I was just obsessed and I had to follow this and there was no way that I could conceive of doing this as a hobby. So I applied to four PhD programs. I got into all of them. I, I you know, pitted one against the other for money and ended up coming mm. to Rice in Houston. And mm. um, it's a secular school. It's never been affiliated with any church or denomination or anything, and which was a brand new experience and just continued studying and ended up teaching while I was still doing my PhD, I ended up adjunct teaching in local universities in Houston in the humanities programs, in the okay. writing programs, in and so in humanities, you know, general type classes, you know, Plato to NATO type stuff, you know. Mm, and mm -hmm. and and that included world religions. So I started teaching world religions and and then it just grew from there. And in this world religions is at, at an undergrad school, you're kind mm -hmm. of teaching it's kind of comparative religion, like yeah, you're saying, it's comparative we're doing a week, a week on Buddhism, and we're going to do a week yeah. on Hinduism and that kind yeah. of thing. That's pretty much it. Yeah. That's isn't and, it interesting how many yeah. people who lose their I mean, of course, some people lose their faith in grad school, and then they want nothing to do with religion. And then there's this whole other tribe of people who lose their personal faith, but continue to be really intrigued by homo religiosis, I guess you would say, and yeah, totally. continue to study it. You know, for me, it's not, I mean, I'm obviously in that second tribe, but for me, religion, perhaps better than any other human cultural product, asks the deep questions. Mm. Who are we? Why are we here? How'd we get here? Why are we here? What are we supposed to do while we're here? Why do we die? Why is there suffering? You know, these are the big questions. And yeah. you can ask and answer those questions as an artist, as a theologian, as a philosopher, at, you know, there's all kinds of ways and from many different disciplines to ask and answer those questions. Religion does it in spectacular ways. <laughs> and, um, and we've got all of it. In religion, you have it all. You've got the architecture, you've got the history, you've got texts, you've got art, you've got philosophy, you've got all of it. And so hmm. it's sort of the all-purpose humanities discipline and the full bodied experience of yeah. the questions of the humanities. And those were the questions that drove me when I was a little kid, when I was a young scholar, they're still the questions that drive hmm. me that, to this mm -hmm. day. These are the questions I spend my time 
thinking about and reading about and from all, you know, learning about from all sorts of things. And it's part of why I hunt. It's, it informs my hunting. It informs what I choose to eat. It informs how I choose, how I look at, at me as a individual inside a certain species, inside a you know, an earth's ecosystem. It informs all of that. So for me, just the, the, the religion piece, studying the world's religions and studying the philosophies in these religions is just a, a, a stepping point to understanding who I am in this world and what is this mm. world and how do I live every day. That's awesome. I love it. But, uh, you know, you, you married those two, the, the two of the things that I love most and I'm most passionate about, and that's, you know, questions of faith and reality um, and religion, along with um, hunt, hunting in, in mm -hmm. what I would say is like the most profound two pages I've ever read on the subject, which we will get to. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Oh my gosh, I I I think back when I I think when I reviewed Bracy's book for the Christian Century, that might have been the first time I reached out to you because I think I maybe sent you the link to the book review. Um because it's and such I probably a didn't get back to you. No, you did. It it maybe took a little <laughs> bit, but you did. You did get back to me. Um uh and I want to talk about that, but First, um, how did you come into hunting as part of your lifestyle? Yeah, when I was a kid. So both my parents, my father is, um, he was born in Texas, but his family moved to Arkansas pretty soon after he was born. And they're sharecroppers and rural okay. sharecropping people. And they didn't have a lot of money but they always had plenty of food and things because they hunted, they grew huge gardens and, you know, mm. so that was just part of their life. And then my mom from North Louisiana, her family was blue collar, you know, rural blue collar people. And they were avid hunters and anglers as well. And for neither of them, for, from, for neither of their families was hunting or fishing particularly gendered it everybody did it all hmm. the men all the women and um and so that was just the norm and so i i you know i'm their only child and i you know my father taught me how to shoot when i was f about five six years old as soon as i could hold a, a 410 rifle or a 22 mm -hmm. and um you know took me out for target practice and of course I learned how to fish even sooner than that sure. and uh, that's just what we did and we had huge family gardens as well and it was just how we got our food it, I, I mean it was I mean we you know we lived in Shreveport Louisiana which was a small city you know mm -hmm. 150,000 people at the time so of course we you know lived that life and went to grocery stores and stuff but a lot of our food came from hunting and fishing and gardening and my mother was arguably the best hunter in our extended family so my dad no has yeah my mom is of her of her two sisters she's really the only one that really took to hunting my dad has six sisters and all of them were avid hunters. Two of them in particular are some of the Come best. Come on. Oh, God. Two of them <laughs> That's in particular amazing. are some of the best duck hunters I've ever seen. Their husbands wouldn't uh. even hunt with them because they couldn't keep up with them. I mean, they're just um, – but my mother really just kind of fell in with her sister and sisters-in-law. And they're just perfectionist hunters and really great hunters. My mother – um, I mean, white-tailed deer would come up within six feet of her and stomp at her because she would hold so still. She would take hmm. a good 30 seconds to even blink her eye. My goodness. I, 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 nobody could hunt with her because she would get <laughs> frustrated with you if you didn't, you know, if you just dared to blink your eyes regularly. And she, um, I wrote an essay for a collection of book, of a collection of essays here a while back that Mary Stange edited. Um, do you know Mary Stange? No, I don't. 
She's uh, retired. You should have her on the show. She is retired uh, professor in religious studies from Skidmore College. Okay. She is an avid hunter. She's published a great deal in hunting and in environmental ethics. Mm -hmm. She's retired now. She and her husband live on a ranch in Montana, a bison ranch. Mm. Dang. And, but she, you, if you look her up, her last name is Stange, S-T-A-N-G-E. And mm -hmm. she's got a whole lot of publishing on religion and hunting and women and all that. Anyway, okay. she did a collection here a while back, and she asked me to write an essay for it. And it, it's called My Mother's Shotgun. And it's, it's about my mom. You know, my mom is such a great hunter, and I learned so much from hunting with her. And, and then all of my dad's sisters, I mean, they're really my heroes. I mean, these are most, none of these women, well, my mother, but none of these other women went past high school. They're just sort of rural women. They can do anything. They can hmm. cook anything. They can hunt anything, fish it. They can fix it. They can fix cars. They can do carpentry. They can sew, they can there's nothing they can't do. They're so competent. They're hyper competent. So I, they're my heroes in a way. And I just, you know, me and my cousins, we just grew up watching them hunt along with all mm -hmm. the men. And, and so it, it was just part of the culture. So when I went away to college, those were the years probably from 80, the early eighties to the mid nineties. There was about a 15 year period there where I was out of it because I was just busy in yeah, school sure. and doing graduate school and all that. And it wasn't until I got out of graduate school and was um, working and teaching and stuff. I thought, you know, I really need to get back into hunting on my own. And so that's mm -hmm. when I started bird hunting again, goose hunting, duck hunting, dove hunting and quail. Those were the four main things. Uh, in Texas when I finished grad school that I, I got back into it on my own and and I, I didn't grow up goose hunting We didn't really do that in my family But that was that was a big thing at the time in Texas and Eagle Lake, Texas claimed to be the You know snow goose hunting capital of the world and all that so I got in on some of that action and learned quite a bit um, from some guys that were fortunate, you know that were kind enough to teach me how to do it, but mm -hmm. But it's just been part of my life, and but now, yeah, I, I, and I don't want to fall, you know, too deeply into stereotypes here or anything. But I would say that most people who teach comparative religion or world religions uh, and have PhDs from Rice in that kind of thing, these are not um, your your professional peers are probably not hunters. That's correct. And so, uh, how does that in the the circles you travel in? I mean, you're an unlikely hunter, right? Yeah. Um, or an unlikely academic. Yeah, maybe an unlikely academic. How does that? How does that Probably. fly when people find out? You know, in in you're at a professional meeting of uh, scholars of world religions presenting papers uh, on on tolerance. And, uh, you know, trying to figure out why our world has such a hard time getting along. And then people find out you kill animals and eat them. <laughs> you know, one time I was sitting at a, um, at a gala event for some kind of interfaith, something or other and whatever. And at that time, I was the executive director of a center at Rice University devoted to religious tolerance. And okay. so I was at this event. And um, so, you know, we were just, you know, chit chatting at this fancy gala thing. And somebody was, and they were asking about fundraising for the center that I was directing and all that. And I sort of jokingly said, you know, I thought about having a, like a skeet shoot or a dove hunt or something for, <laughs> for peace. <laughs> like, Let's kill the symbol for peace. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> because in Texas, I mean, you do have skeet shoots for. Sure for high-end fundraisers for like yes same symphony. in minnesota yes yeah, for the yes. symphony i mean for something really highbrow you end yeah. up doing what a lot of people consider not so highbrow so in tech but anyway yeah i um 
Yeah, I, it, <laughs> it all makes sense to me because I contain all of these things. It's like the the New Testament uh, story of Jesus casting out the demon who says, I am legion. You yeah. know, it's like, look, I, I've got all this. This is, this is all part of who I am and I'm not willing to relegate any of it um, away from me. So it's just what it is. And, you know, actually it ended up being really interesting because through those conversations with academics is how I did hook up and connect with people like Mary Stange and Bracey Hill and mm -hmm. Tovar Cerulli and a handful of others, Nathan Kowalski, and, and now you, and a few, you know, there's a niche of us. There's a group of us who are in academia in whatever way that we are, and who also hunt and, and, and do these things. And, and they, these worlds end up intersecting. And I think it's important that they do. And yeah. it's just a conversation that, people weren't having for a while and, and now we're having it. Yeah. Um, I, I do want to turn to this essay you wrote, which I'm so fond of. How did you come to, we've had Bracey on, as I said, um, how did you come to be included in this volume called God, Nimrod and the world that Bracey edited? <clears throat> yeah. So he, he, uh, I'm not sure exactly how he, found me. It might have been through something that Mary Stange published, but okay. he, um, he reached out to me and told me he was doing this volume. And initially he wanted me to write, you know, I forget the exact sections in that book, but I wrote for one of the sections where it was much more of a academic type article and, you know, much more, um, yeah whatever. And I, so I, I kind of had an idea for something and I, so I wrote it and the, the, rev, the peer review that he submitted it to, um, came back and they were just <laughs> really not impressed and were assaulted oh, no. and, oh, no. and wanted me to go back and do all this work with <laughs> oh, no. Thomas Aquinas and all this stuff. I was like, Oh, come on. Okay. Okay. No, I'm not up for that. So, um, I was like, okay, thanks Bracey. Uh, I'm just not up for, you know, doing this. And so, you know, I respectfully withdraw um, my submission. Thanks for inviting me. And he came back a little while later and said, you know, I really want your voice in here. Um, there's going to be a section for people who hunt, who reflect deeply on this. Can you write something for that? And I had just written a small piece for, the centers, the center for humans and nature, which is an online outfit. And so I kind of pulled from that piece and redid it for, for Bracey's book. And it, it you know, it just kind of came out in one yeah. sitting and it's, uh, it's yeah, kind of really it, how I view the, it's how I view the yeah. thing. It's how I view the world. Well, this is what, I mean, it's funny. It's funny to hear that, that, um, journey, because a lot of the chapters in the book are academic. They're, you know, written by professors and they're full mm -hmm. of footnotes and quotes by Thomas Aquinas, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then there's this middle section and that's where your essay is. Yeah. But it's also like, um, like one of the duck dynasty guys has a bit in there. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like a bunch of uh, other forgot you, that. Oh yeah, it's like um, guys who have TV shows, hunting TV shows, and whatever. Not all of them, but and they're all they all ba basically say the same thing. It's like, well, Genesis says we have dominion over the animals, so that's why we kill them and eat them. Yeah, and, and I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that's where I, I when I was given this book to review, I, you know, you're. Um, your reflection, which is just two pages, was so profound and, and beautiful um, that it, it stuck out and I highlighted it in the review. So I want to, you know, talk to you a little bit about this because it, it does seem like such an honest reflection. It does not surprise me to hear that it just kind of flowed out um, because it seems to summarize it, it just what you did was you put words 
to something that I had struggled to put words to. And that mm. is, I mean, one of your phrases, um, I think you use the phrase, you know, like the cycle, do you use the phrase, the cycle of predation or something like that mm-hmm. yeah. um, in there. Yeah. And um, I'd love to hear you talk about how you came to, uh, I guess, embrace this idea that you are both a predator and prey and how that puts your own hunting life in context. I mean, you start you start the essay with, I eat meat. Like, I'm a carnivore, mm-hmm. I eat meat, and therefore, you know, I think the most ethical way to be involved in eating meat is to harvest my own game, which mm-hmm. I think a lot of hunters would agree with. But yeah. where you take it, I think that's so profound, is this idea that I, I'm a predator and I'm prey, and in embracing that, and I guess, okay, it's also particularly striking that a, you know, progressive scholar of religion would be embracing this, I guess, kind of what you would consider this traditional masculine predator language. So it was all that was mixed into me Mm -hmm. from these emotions of like reading this, resonating with it, feeling like at least for me, it was coming from an unlikely source. Right. Um, and, and which I think uh, made it all the more profound and all the more like, I wanted to talk to you and learn more from you about, about this. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting for me to hear you put all that together. Um, you know, for me, it started a long time ago. I mean, these are questions that I've been hovering around for 30 years. Mm. And, you know, my first, research work that ended up, you know, my master's thesis, which ended up being my PhD dissertation, which ended up being my first book, was uh, addressing the violent imagery in the nature writing of Annie Dillard. Hmm. And interesting. And retrieving, so the sub, the title of my dissertation, which became my first book, was called is called The Savage Side, Reclaiming Violent Models of God. Hmm. And so I, I, I've done this analysis of Annie Dillard's work for 30 years, and I, I came to it because, so this is going to like really sound really geeky, okay? So you and our scholar, okay. so we're going to yeah, talk about Yeah, I can this. handle it. I can handle it. Right. So I, um, I, was very struck by Hume, David Hume's critique of religion, by Freud, by Feuerbach, Mm -hmm. and by Nietzsche. These 19th, um, particularly these 19th century critiques of religion, Mm -hmm. where the models of God that emerge in Christianity and Judaism and Islam, but particularly Christianity, the largest religion in the history of the world, that the models of God are either projections of human wish fulfillment, projections of daddy images in the sky, or, you know, wills to power in some way, Mm -hmm. rooted in revenge. And so I took these very seriously, and I, I thought, you know, is there, where would we go if we wanted to find uh, models of God or of a divine or intimations of a divine not influenced by human wish fulfillment or myth or magical thinking or wills to power where would we look for that gosh where are the indicators i don't know tom thomas jefferson right Uh, what you strip all yeah people have tried to do that it's the natural world Uh uh-huh okay we did not create the natural world we don't run it even if we end up destroying it to the point that we destroy ourselves, it will recover. We're the ones who will die away. It won't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It does not do our bidding. It does not subscribe to our moral categories. It, you know, it, it just doesn't. Yeah. Certainly we don't see it itself. We, see, we know our perceptions of it. I mean, I've read my Kant. I understand that. But the natural world is an indicator of something 
that it, it's we did not create it it was here before we were we are of it it generated us yeah and it will swallow us back up at some point and so i you know started saying okay well so i have to look at the natural world so what do we know about the natural world what do we know about its powers what do we know about its its uh temperament what do we you know to use sort of personified language or anthropomorphic language what what do we know about it and that drew me to the work of annie dillard because she has done this writing forever won a pulitzer for her first book on it and mm -hmm. so i just kind of got sucked down into that and you know emerged with there's a reason why the world's religions often portray their gods as being violent it's because that's that's what we experience anybody mm -hmm. who's gone through a hurricane or a tornado, or an earthquake, or wildfire, or who's had a deadly virus come into their body. What's a virus? It's just another part of the natural world. Mm -hmm. The natural world can be hostile to us. It's part of the powers that brood and light and bear down upon us. And it also is nourishing to us. I mean, we, it brings us rain and food and warmth and, and beauty and all the things that it does, but it is, uh, it is not only that it is also terrifying and powerful beyond anything we could ever do and so uh, it, it suddenly made sense to me why the world's religions portray gods in the way that they do as both loving and violent as both cr mm. both creative and destructive as both merciful and terrifying that all of these things are part of the powers that be in terms of what we have to reckon with as human beings and so i'm in graduate school at a time when all the feminist theologians are wanting to do away with all the violent imagery of god and talk about god as mother and lover right. and friend and the earth is god's body and it's all like womb like and all like happy and nourishing and warm and i'm like screw that i mean look out the window i mean come on have you read nietzsche have you read do you not know that you're just making up some you know mother god in the sky just like everybody just like the patriarch patriarchy has made up the father god i mean what's the difference you, we've got so you know, my dissertation, I got a Woodrow Wilson fellowship to write my dissertation and that immediately had publishers, you know, reaching out to me to publish it. And so once it was done, you know, they read it and a couple of them were like, <laughs> you know, this is, I mean, to their, I was really pleased. They said, this is some of the most original writing we've ever seen and we can't publish this uh -huh. because yeah. it's not politically correct. Gosh, Jill, that's just so fascinating, especially in the context that we're in. I mean, this is okay. So for, for readers who didn't, I mean, sorry, for listeners who didn't understand why I was so like taken aback and shocked by reading from, you, you know, reading you write about being a carnivore and a predator mm -hmm. and the, and the cycle of predation yep. and you're a, you know, I, I would guess I would say a progressive, a feminist, mm -hmm. a, a mm -hmm. scholar of world religions. Yep. Yeah, you. Th this I imagine it it has been somewhat difficult to get a hearing for that kind of scholarship. Um, Until people like Bracy Hill and Nathan mm -hmm. Kowalski and Mary Stange, you know, reached out. Yeah, yeah. What? Why do you think it is that? so many of us, so many of the people that surround us in modern urbanized Western civilization are so, uh, are so afraid of, or of, of the violent that's in violence that's inherent in the human condition because we're embedded in the natural world. Like what is that evolution that has led us to this, place where where everyone's trying to act like this this creation is not a violent place yeah i don't know i you know my gut my gut response to that is that we're increasingly estranged 
mm. from the natural world. Yeah. We're just estranged. We're estranged from the ground of our own being. We mm. live and move and have our being in nature. Yes. In the natural we should. world. Yes. We, right. Well, we do. Whether or not we know it, we do. Yeah. I mean, there is no other ground. Whatever we build, whatever civilizations we build, we build on top of the natural world of the cosmos. Mm -hmm. We're still in it. I mean, we, we're never out of it. And so we live and move and have our being in that, but we're estranged from that. We're profoundly estranged from it in our contemporary Western society. We, you know, people don't know where their food comes from. They don't, we live in artificial environments in air con you know climate controlled environments we mm -hmm. um, increasingly live on our screens we don't even go outside and when we do we go to cultivated areas even when we go out to a natural you know a national park or something we stay on the trail we certainly are not actively engaged in in even backyard gardening which would give you an appreciation for how things work you know mm -hmm. how the cycles of life and death and regeneration work. I mean, even to grow a tomato in a five gallon bucket, you've got to contend with predation. <laughs> I mean, mm -hmm. you've, yeah. you've got to deal with it because something else is going to get your tomatoes because they're hungry. So everything's got to eat. And so, and everything eats everything else. And that's the way of the thing. And so, but we're estranged from that unless you yeah. deliberately put yourself in the path of that and know that you need to do it. You have to know that you're estranged mm -hmm. and you have to know that you have to get yourself out of your daily arcs of life and go out and see something and experience something different. I, I, to me, that's the reason I, I, I know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm sure there are many other reasons, but that's my gut level feeling is that yeah. we're profoundly estranged. I think, I mean, one of the things you just hinted at there that you write in the essay that I found fascinating and c totally agree with, but I think a lot of people doesn't even occur to them, is you're, you say, you know, even, even herbivores are predators, even plants are predators, like yeah. plants absorb you know, microscopic bacteria, mm -hmm. insects, and things like that. Like, mm -hmm. this is the way that the world operates. It's the way the yeah. natural world operates. Some things die so that other things can live. Yeah. That's the formula. Um, I want to ask you... Okay, <laughs> I want to read to you this part that I thought was so great. I just want to read to you a couple parts and ask you to reflect on them. Mm -hmm. You write, um, I kill, I eat. Something else will kill me, a virus, another predator perhaps. Maybe I'll get lucky if, uh, and die of old age. Either way, I will be food for something. A critic might ask incredulously, which I've been asked, how would you like to be eaten? You write, well, I will be eaten. Hopefully mm -hmm. after I'm dead and not while still alive. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure how I'll like it. <laughs> but yeah. like it or not, it's part of the contract of life on this marble planet. So this idea, again, this is an idea that we like to avoid. I mean, we really do. We hide away death. And yeah, I think yeah. hunting has put me in, like I most likely will shoot a white-tailed deer this weekend and mm -hmm. i will cut it open you know from anus to sternum right and i will sink my hands elbow deep into its viscera and right. and pull them out and leave them by the side of the road and then put up a trail camera because i'm part of a study with the minnesota dnr to see what eats the offal that's left behind oh, yeah. from white-tailed deer hunters. That's fascinating. Yeah, see what other kind of varmints and critters come in and over the next month and take care of all that and absorb that into themselves while I'm back butchering the deer. So I love this idea. I mean, I, I don't even know if there are questions here, Jill. I'm just telling you how much yeah. I love this essay. <laughs> I'm so glad that it's, it strikes a chord with you. It, you know, to me, this is just obvious. It's, mm -hmm. it's obvious. And yet, as you point out, so many of us 
live oblivious to this or we don't want to know it. We don't want to face it. We don't, it's messy, it's bloody. And, and I, you know, I think part of it is the hubris of the modern Western culture. And it's not limited to the Western culture. It's, it's part of the hubris of being human. We think we can evolve ourselves out of this that we can evolve ourselves and develop ourselves and grow civilizationally such that we are exempt from these types of processes. We thought that we've been exempt from them because we could master them or control them. And, you know, we could yeah. master, you know, turn the river and conquer disease. And it's all that, you know, positivism that you see, particularly in the 19th, into the 19th century into the 20th. And, it's uh, it's it's just magical thinking. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, I hear this it, all the time it, yeah. and maybe you do, too, of like uh, people say to me all the time in 100 years, nobody's going to eat meat. And we're going to look back on it and say, that was stupid. Like, I can't believe we ate meat for 100,000 years. <laughs> I mean, that to me is huge. That's great deal of hubris. I call that chronocentrism when you think like it's it's the it's it's Francis Fukuyama saying we live at the end of history like we've done yeah. everything this is it <laughs> we're at the apex of of you know uh, of cultural evolution and i just am like bullshit really? like this is th this whole thing's going to collapse where it's going to you know and i'm going to be able to feed my family after totally. our, you know after our yeah. government collapses I mean, the only, you know, in my view, the only way we won't be eating meat is if, you know, we kill off all the animals with yeah. climate change and environmental crisis and we end up having yeah. to eat each other, you know, I mean, that, <laughs> right. you know, which, and as soon as we're done as a species, I mean, the world will be better off. I mean, yes. in terms of the rest of the species, it'll regenerate itself. But yeah, yeah I, I just think we're in magical thinking. We get caught up in this this hubris of it being an anthropocentric universe, and it's not. It, yeah. We do not live in a universe that's centered around us. It's 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 centered around itself. Um, and it'll dispose of yeah. us at some point. Right. I, I I've I, I think I've said this on the podcast before, but I sometimes think of it like um, the dog that comes out of the lake and shakes and shakes the water off. Like that's what the the planet will do to humanity. <laughs> we'll just uh, yeah. just gonna shake us off like a dog shaking water off it. Like I've and had. We're helping it. We're helping it <laughs> yeah. to do that. I know. You know. I know. And so the thing is, Tony, is that to, what you and I are saying here is absolutely contradictory to the gut level beliefs of huge chunks of the human population. Because I totally largest, agree, but is there is the there any way religion, to evangelize those people? Well, to, the to, largest religion in the world has taught us that we are to dominate and, and yes. use the animals and the planet for our bidding. Yes. And we don't hold those beliefs up in our head, we hold them in our gut. They're, they're deep within us. They're, they're not, I'm not saying they're irrational. They make perfectly logical sense in many ways. They're sub-rational. We hold them at the level of instinct, at the level of something in our gut. And to have that shaken and to have that challenged is far more than simply an intellectual argument. It is a gut level shaking of the foundations. And it's it's just scary for so so many folks. It was scary for me. It's scary for yeah. me. But I had already left my Christian faith on intellectual grounds before that. So I was a little bit, you know, it was it, I, I was able to just move into this. Um, but it's scary. It's and it's very scary. And and I, so I don't blame people. I, it's just. Um, it's hard to to wrestle with it. Um, it's it's what you and I are saying is contrarian. Yeah, and I think I think it is hard to disabuse people of it. And yet, um, I have found more people of late, just in, in the last couple of years. And I don't know if it's like the 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 crisis people feel like our country is in, or because of you know I'm 52 and a lot of people my age are empty nesters and kind of middle-aged and like, what am I going to do with the next 20 years of my life? And 
some I've had more people, including you know my dear friend Brandon, who's the producer here, and and uh, listening in with his mic on mute. Want they want to learn how to hunt? They they like want to be engaged mm. in the natural world in this way. And I find it, I think I'm just going to have everybody read your two pages. I'm going to have to get permission from Bracey to like, but I, I want to, I, before we go, this this part just gives me chills and it's the last thing I want you to reflect on. It's, it's the last line really mm. it gives me chills, but the, your final paragraph, uh, when I take to the field with my shotgun to hunt, I say yes to the world as it is, to my place within it. I'm a human animal alongside the other animals living and dying, eating and being eaten. I accept this reality. I accept my place within this reality. I'm not willing to estrange myself from the world by morally condemning this fundamental aspect of our larger existence. To morally condemn predation would be to condemn the whole world. I can't bring myself to do that. I love the world too much. Yeah. So my question is, uh, oh my gosh, what is my question? It's like a deeply existential question. It is. Um, how is condemning predation condemning the world? And how is embracing predation loving the world? Well, if predation, as I have explained it in that, little piece and I, I have a longer piece that's published in another volume that you might be interested in um it's called life in contradiction living in contradiction to life or life in contradiction to life or something um, which goes into that much more deeply but mm -hmm. um predation is a part of the it, it's it's the contract of our existence here it's what we sign up for when we come into the world whether we like it or not and it's just what is and there's no improving the world out of it hmm. and so much of our efforts in civilization have been to improve the world to make it less violent less predation you know less predatory less all those things and it's just a category mistake to try to do that to nature and all of all of those efforts are presuming that we are somehow above and beyond and separate from nature so it's a particular mm -hmm. kind of arrogance and mm. hubris. And I, I, I'm not willing to estrange myself from the world. This is, this, the, the world is what generated me. I didn't come from outside the cosmos and dropped in by divine fiat. I mm -hmm. was generated from the same carbon-based life forms that the trees and the cacti and my dogs and everything else is generated from. And I, 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 I'm not separate from that. And hmm. I, so to say that I love the world is, is I love myself. I, I love where I came from. I love the ground of my existence and mm -hmm. I'm not willing to estrange myself from it that would be self-defeating. That would be self-hating. And I, I just love, I love the world. I, I love, I love the world hmm. and I love myself. It, it, it's mm -hmm. all, it's all connected. Um, this is a Nietzschean. It's Nietzsche. Nietzsche is the one mm -hmm. dead white male that I've spent my life teaching about that I would mm -hmm. go, go back in time and have dinner with. I'd have to clock him first because he's <laughs> kind of a misogynist. And right. I'd have to have him shave that small rodent looking mammal thing <laughs> off his upper lip, that big mustache. <laughs> but, yeah. but I love his ideas and he gets a bad yeah. rap. And, and he, he talks about this, that where do we get this idea that we're going to improve on the natural world? We're going to improve things. It, it's not broken. Not really. Not unless you believe in something like the Genesis fall and sinfulness and that the world is so sinful and rotten to its core that God himself had to come down here and die and provide a blood sacrifice. Mm -hmm. I, I am not that self-hating. Hmm. Wow. Well, Jill, I thank you. <laughs> It's, I mean, we could go. On. I'm going to have to have you back on. There's more to talk about. 
I hope a billion people listen to this episode <laughs> of the podcast and and take what you're saying seriously. It's so important and profound and might be our only freaking hope, you know? <laughs> It that could be. be I just hope. wish, you know, we would all hunt and fish more. <laughs> I think uh, we'd be saner. <laughs> amen, sister. And I'm amen. really glad. Thanks for having me on here. It's really great oh, to yeah. talk to you. It's great to talk to you. We are going to meet in person. We are going to hunt together. Let we'll me know when it, you're driving through. If you drive through Arizona or anywhere yeah. close by on your epic duck trip, I'll, you know, we can have lunch or coffee or something. That'd be awesome. I would absolutely know. love it. Okay. All right. Thanks a million. All right, Tony. Thank you. Talk to you later. Bye, Jill. Bye.